Let's pray and we'll get going. God, we are weak and you are strong. We come to you broken, sinful people. Um, Lord, I just pray if anyone has shame this morning or is just feeling just without control in their life and feeling their weakness, God, this morning, I just pray that you would be with them. Uh, God, help us to take whatever shame we have and put it at the foot of your cross this morning. Um, Lord, we want to know you. We want to love you. Uh, God, I pray that, yeah, just this this passage would, the the reality of it, the weight of it would just bear on our hearts this morning that that I would be impacted by it and that it would it would accomplish something for, for those listening today. Um, Lord, we desperately want to know you and seek you. And God, you know we need you. So I pray that you would just work in us. Amen. All right. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. We're continuing, uh, we're in week two of a, a series we're calling Resilient Church. And what do we mean by resilient? Resilient is a word that means absolutely nothing without suffering. Resilience is a quality that is absolutely useless without a struggle. As long as you don't suffer, as long as you don't struggle, you don't need resilience. It's not going to do anything for you. Until you suffer, until you really struggle, resilience, it's always going to be nothing to you. But when you do, resilience becomes everything because it determines what happens next. It's the difference between lying on your back searching for a reason to get out of bed in the morning and waking up early before the sun rises just to be alone in the presence of God. It's the difference between letting your mind drift away in the midst of work or when you're at home, gradually shutting down day after day and engaging with and dreaming with those you love about what you can accomplish that day, let alone that week or in the months or years to come. It's the difference between death and life. Resilience is what brings people back when the death of a loved one just sucks the life out of their soul and they just can't find a reason to live. It's what, it's what causes you to continue to take the steps to fight an addiction when you just feel the, the claws of it around your heart and you just keep succumbing to it again and again. Resilience is it's when, when we're at our weakest, at our lowest, in the most debilitating state, and we just feel like we cannot go on. It's what gets you up and keeps you going, even when it makes no sense, so that you can be there when it does. We're calling this series in 2 Corinthians Resilient Church because in this book, Paul is describing a supernatural resilience that God is working in our hearts that we can, we can be resilient as human beings, but we're still weak as human beings. And so when we get in these moments where we're so broken, so weak, and we literally don't have the strength to keep going, we don't have the strength to carry on, what Paul's showing us in 2 Corinthians is that in Christ, in those moments, God is in us working. Uh, his strength is working in the midst of our weakness, and he's, he's working in the midst of those circumstances to carry us on, to carry us forward. Um, to continue to build up in us a, a strength to press on. And it's not our strength. It's a supernatural resilience that comes from him. And so 
that's that's what we're talking about today is this weak this this resilience in our weakest most desperate moments the strength of god is in us and this is a resilience a supernatural resilience that we need now as much as ever amen oh come on we need this now right amen you guys are with me okay so in second uh this morning we're talking about resilient relationships by relationships i'm not just talking about marriages i'm not just talking about dating but any kind of relationships, workplace, neighbors, family relationships, friendships, the ways in which we relate to each other, because really this is a passage that's about conflict. And so any relationship can have conflict. And we're talking about resilient relationships that, that get over conflict. The relationship between Paul and the Corinthian church, it seemed like it was falling apart. Basically, if you look back at 1 Corinthians, you see Paul writing to a church that is just running rampant with sin. There's all kinds of major sin issues. There's divisions in the church. There's all kinds of conflict and infighting. And Paul's writing and saying, guys, if you don't step up and deal with this, if you don't bring this into the light and repent and, and bring this to the cross and ask God to change and radically shape this church, this sin is going to drag you away from him. And it's going to drag the people around you away from him. This is serious stuff. Sin leads to death and it needs to be destroyed. And you need to deal with this. So that's 1 Corinthians. And so sometime later, Paul's going on a missionary journey. He's going to pass by Corinth. And so he writes to Corinthians and he makes this plan to make this double visit to Corinth where he'll, on the way to where he's going, he'll stop in Corinth to see how they're doing. And then on the way back, he'll stop again, right? And so he goes and he stops the first time, but that visit goes about as terribly as a visit could, right? He's there to, to encourage them to follow Christ more. He's there to see how they're doing, to see how they're putting sin to death. And essentially what happens is the Corinthians reject Paul's authority. They say, you won't have a place here. We don't need to follow you. We don't even think that you're a real apostle, a real leader in the church. And there were rival leaders that they were following. And so they basically kick Paul out and say, we don't want anything to do with this. We're not going to change, right? And so really painful for Paul to see uh, these people that he loves just sticking, staying put in the sin that they're in and not willing to repent. And so he goes on. And instead of coming back the second time, instead, Paul writes a letter. Uh, we don't have this letter anymore, but apparently he references it later. He writes a letter and it had a severe tone. And in it, he's calling the Corinthians to repentance. He's saying, this is something you need to deal with. And if you don't, we're going to have to show up and exercise church discipline. And, and the people who are rebelling, are, we're going to have to split the church and it's going to be a mess. And so it's this, this severe letter. He calls them to repentance. And so sometime later, Paul gets a report that, that his hopes uh, were realized and that that letter worked, that, that God moved and that the Corinthians had, had repented and had turned from that sin. And there's still, there was still some rebellion in the church. There was still some doubt about Paul's authority, but um, ultimately they had re re repented from, from the sin that they'd been in and they turned to follow Paul again, right? And, and to follow Christ and to submit to Paul's leadership. And so what we have here in 2 Corinthians is Paul writing and opening his heart to the Corinthians to show them just how much he loves them. And just how glad he is. There's still some hurt. There's still some discouragement in the church based on the letter and just the whole situation. And Paul's opening his heart to show them the, the care and the love that he has. So once again, in the passage today, we're talking about resilient relationships. And what we're going to do is we're going to look at three specific ways that God is working and building uh, resilience into our relationships. Three specific ways that he's doing that. And Paul's going general big picture here, right? So we're talking about resilience in relationships so that your relationships will not only survive, but continue to thrive. Um, but this is a big picture. And so the tension that I feel this morning is that on the one hand, I don't want you to hear this message and think, man, like, what does this mean for my 
the abusive marriage that I used to be in? Or what does this mean for this really dysfunctional, broken family situation? This isn't, this isn't uh, hard and fast rules saying that like exactly what you have to do in every conflict ever, right? Because relationships are messy and relationships are dysfunctional. And you kind of have to take them on a case-by-case basis. There's not really one general rule that applies to every situation. So Paul's dealing with your heart condition here, right? But on the other side of that tension is, I don't want you to hear what I just said and say, oh, great. Well, now I have my get out of sermon free card and I don't really have to listen to anything you say from this point on. So I'm just going to sit here and play on my phone and then I'll be done. And this is going to have no effect on my life whatsoever. Because if that's you, you're going to miss out on the joy that comes through reconciliation. And it's so profound. And God is calling us. Paul is inviting us to, to have the sort of resilience in our relationships that, so that we can have friends and family and Christian community that endures. And so that we don't go bouncing from, from, from relationship to relationship and from church to church. Amen? So uh, conflict is hard. Relationships are messy. But the big idea today is that Paul is going to show us how God uses our conflict to showcase the power of his grace and to unite us in supernatural joy. All right, you with me? Okay, so with that, the first way that God works resilience into our relationships is by moving us to celebrate others. Let's look at verse 12. Chapter one, verse 12. Paul writes, for our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and supremely so toward you. So Paul is boasting in his simplicity. He's saying, my boast, what I'm taking pride in, is how unremarkable I am. I'm taking pride in how unimpressive I am. Is that registering? Basically, what Paul's saying to the Corinthians is he's saying, some of you guys are pretty unimpressive, but none of you are as unimpressive as I am. Right? That's what he's saying. He's saying, my boast is in my simplicity. Right? Why would he say that? What, what, what's going on there? Well, the Corinthians had a problem with pride. If you go back to 1 Corinthians, you see there were all, in the first couple chapters, you see there's all kinds of divisions in the church. And some people are saying, oh, I follow Paul, or I follow this guy named Apollo, so I follow this other leader. And, and there's, all kinds of, uh, there's all kinds of conflict about who has the best leader because the Corinthians really emphasized appearances. They really loved outward expressions of intelligence and strength and power, and wisdom. And so that's what they were all about. And they had so much pride in in themselves and in their leaders. And and that's what they emphasize. And so what Paul does is he comes to the church, and he sees the culture in Corinth. And he sees how that culture is, is also prevalent in the church. And there's all this pride. And so what he does is he takes all of his qualifications, right? He takes all of his credentials, all of his, he's really well educated. He's trained under one of the best. He's a great debater, all these things that he could do. He takes all that and he sets it at the door. And he comes in and he, he just resolves to live simply. He says something like, I resolved as long as I was with you to know nothing except Christ and him crucified. I'm not going to be really smart. I'm not going to have great arguments. I'm not going to like try to outwit you. I'm not going to try to be more clever than my opponents. Instead, I'm going to be simple and just bring the gospel and, and nothing more. So that when, when God works and moves through the gospel and the church builds and grows and, and you see people coming to Christ, no one can look at me and say, oh, well, it's because Paul's such a great leader. Or no one can say, oh, I'm, I'm better than Paul because I'm a better leader. He's saying, no, this is God's strength working out in my weakness. There's nothing, there's nothing else to show there that Paul is, is doing that. And so he's, he's reminding the Corinthians that 
my, he's saying my boast is in my simplicity in my sincerity towards you. But, but rather, um, we're looking at God showcasing his strength in the midst of Paul's simplicity. So he continues on in verse 13. He says, for we are not writing to you anything other than what you read and understand. So apparently one of the, one of the accusations that people were still kind of holding against Paul within the church, at least some of them was that, uh, he had a lot of passive aggressive letters right? That he would write and he would, he would have all these hidden meanings. He'd be writing one thing, but really what he's saying is something else. And you kind of have to read between the lines. And so you can almost kind of picture some of Paul's rivals saying, oh, Paul wrote that to you. But what he's really saying is this over here. Have you ever had that just kind of passive aggressive comments within Christian community or within the church? Like that's awful. That's horrible. Like, like someone who comes up and says, I know you try. I know you do. And I just want you to know I'm, I'm really praying for you. And it's just like this, like out of the nowhere, like condescension, like it's, it's no good. Right. You know? And so uh, what Paul's saying is he's saying, no, when I say, I love you, I mean, I love you. When I say I'm praying for you, I'm, I'm serious that I, I thank God for you. I celebrate you in my prayers daily because of how much I love you. He's saying, I'm not writing to you anything other than what you see. You can take my words at face value. There's no judgment here. He continues in verse 13, he says, for we are not writing to you anything other than what you read and understand. And I hope you will fully understand just as you did partially understand us, understand what? That on the day of our Lord Jesus, you will boast of us as we will boast of you. That on the day of our Lord Jesus, you will boast of us as we will boast of you. So in the end, when Jesus returns, no one's going to be boasting about how great of a leader they are. No one's going to be boasting about who they followed while they were here on earth. No one's going to be boasting about how smart they are, how much they make, how, how, uh, how much they have, or how much people like them, or how popular they are, you know, whatever it is. No one's boasting in that. Instead, people will be boasting in each other. Paul's saying to the Corinthians, even if you don't boast in me now, you're going to boast in me on the day of Christ, just as I and, and the people with me will be boasting of you. Why? Because joy comes through community. Joy comes through relationships that we have with the people around us. So you can be an introvert, right? You can, you can get fed up with community and say, you know what? I just need to be alone. This is too much. I'm an extrovert. I tend to have that effect on people. People, people <laughs> discover their inner introvert when they're around me. I'm pretty sure I converted a couple people to be an introvert once. At the end of the day, though, you were made for community. Introvert, extrovert, it doesn't matter. You were made for community because joy comes through the relationships we have with the people around us, loving, living and loving and worshiping God together, right? So Paul is saying that we weren't made to celebrate ourselves. We were made to celebrate each other. Our boast is not in ourselves. Our boast is in the people around us. We celebrate them. So that's basically saying, man, let me tell you about Kyle. Like what a great guy he is. The snakes, I'm not really about it, but everything else, what a great guy, man. So amazing. I just, I'm so excited. We'll be in heaven. We'll be saying, oh, I see you're talking to Karen. My goodness. What an amazing woman this is. Do you have any idea how many people God has blessed through her life? Like what an, um, just such a blessing to, to me and to all the people around me. And Austin, don't even get me started about Austin. What a great guy he is. And that's what we'll be doing. We'll be looking at the people and saying, I delight in this person more than anything else in the world. I'm loving this person of all God's creation. We as, 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 as his image bearers are the pinnacle of his creation. And, and we're made to boast in and celebrate each other. Paul's inviting the Corinthians to embrace this truth now because through the gospel, God is moving us to celebrate others now. 
You can live to see the people around you come to know Jesus. You can live to bring joy into the lives of the people in your neighborhood. We can live to celebrate others now. Think about how amazing that would look in the world, right? If we didn't live for the stuff that we can have and we didn't use people for what they can give us, but instead we said, I celebrate people for who they are. And I want, I want to live for and spend my life, my time, my resources, my money, just to bring joy to and celebrate the people around me. So who in this community do you celebrate? Who, who in your life are the people that you celebrate? Who would you celebrate that you don't celebrate now? The more that your heart and your desires are surrendered to God, and the more that you say, God, take this. I, I, want, I want to want what you want. I want to be like you. I want to share your heart for the people around me. The more you'll find that coming true, and the more you'll find yourself gradually, over time, over years of doing that, just living to, to love and serve and delight in the people around you. So that brings us to the second way that God works resilience in our relationships. And that's by making us one part of a bigger whole. One part of a bigger whole. So verse 15, Paul says, because I was sure of this, that we would boast in each other on the day of Christ, because I was sure of this, I wanted to come to you first so that you might have a second experience of grace. I wanted to visit you on my way uh, to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on my way to Judea. So what Paul's doing is he's reminding the Corinthians what they already knew, which is that he'd planned to visit them twice, but that he didn't come back the second time, right? And he wrote to them that letter instead. And so in verse 17, he says, was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? And so that brings us to another accusation that apparently people had against Paul, which was that he was flaky that his yes didn't mean yes and his no didn't mean no, that he might say he would do something or not do something, but that he was flaky and he wouldn't really follow through on it. It's probably, again, another rival leader in the church trying to discredit Paul and saying, hey, this guy said he was going to come back, but then he didn't come back. So why should we follow him? He doesn't even keep his word, right? He's flaky. So what Paul says to that, he says in verse 20, He he says uh, in verse uh, 18, as surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. For the promises of God find their yes, for all the promises of God find their yes in him. That God never breaks his promises. That's Paul's answer. God never breaks his promises. What he says in true, is true. And Jesus is the fulfillment of every promise of God. And so because we saw Christ come and be given for us on the cross, we know that God keeps his promises. And, and all of the promises that he made throughout the Old Testament, throughout scripture, are fulfilled in the person of Christ. And that same God who never goes back on his word, that same God is the God who's leading Paul. That's the same God who's, who's uh, directing Paul's steps Uh, And he's leading Sylvanus and Timothy with Paul, who are witnesses to Paul's intentions. And so Paul's saying, no, I'm not flaky, just as the God who I serve and who leads me and I follow isn't flaky. And so when you're saying that I'm flaky, it's like like you're accusing God of going back on his word. And that's not true. God doesn't do that. He continues in verse 20. He says, that is why it is through him, Jesus, that we utter our amen to God for his glory. That is why it is through Jesus that we utter our let it be so to God for his glory. That's our response to his promises. Verse 21, and it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us 
and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. So remember that several people in Corinth had ignored Paul's authority and rejected him as the leader of their church. But here Paul's saying that it's the same God who never goes back on his word, who always keeps his promises. That's the same God who established both Paul and the Corinthians together as brothers and sisters in the same family. And it's the same God who established Paul as an apostle and a ministry to to the world beyond beyond the Jews, right? The, The rest of the Gentile world. And so therefore, he's also a leader over the Corinthian church. It's not a self-appointed position. Paul's saying, this same guy who never goes back on his word, he established me as a leader over you. And so would you submit to, to my leadership and to the authority that I have in the church because I use it for your good? The language of, of being anointed and having the Holy Spirit in our hearts, that really brings weight to the reality that Paul's describing there. Right? Whenever we have a conflict or a falling out with someone else in the church, what Paul's saying is that God anoint, he established us together. He anointed us both to be, to be in his family, right? And so God established you as a brother and a sister or a brother and a brother in Christ or, or sisters in Christ. And so when you, when you have conflict with someone, you're basically rebelling against that and saying, God, I think you made a mistake. We shouldn't be brothers. We could be friends in heaven. We shouldn't be brothers. We, we can't be sisters in heaven. We could, you know, if, as long as I'm on one side of heaven and she's on the other side of heaven, that's fine right? But we just can't be next to each other. I don't, I'm not saying I want them to go to hell. I'm just saying I just, I just can't get with them, right? I can't, I can't hang out with them. When we have a falling out with people in the church and we can't make it work, that's what we're saying. We're saying, God, I can't be in a family with this person. You made a mistake, right? And then the other, the other thing we see there is that he says, and the Holy Spirit's in our hearts so that when we have conflict with and end up having a falling out with or rejecting another person in the church, it's like we're rejecting the Holy Spirit in that person because that person is is indwelt by God and part of his family. And so rejecting him because they're part of the body of Christ is like we're rejecting a part of the body. It just doesn't work. It's not about whether conflict happens, right? Conflict is going to happen. It's not about whether conflict happens. A resilient relationship is how we respond once conflict happens, right? In the same way that resilience is, is how you deal with suffering, a resilient relationship is how you deal with conflict. It's the difference between bouncing from church to church, never really sticking with a community, and finding lifelong friends and family who you always love and are excited to see, even if slash after they move away. Our culture tends to view relationships as disposable, right? Because when we value ourselves as highest, when it's, when it's putting myself first, looking out for number one, I value myself as highest, then all the relationships around me are only as good as what they can do for me, as what they can accomplish for me. But when conflict arises, if I'm number one, I start to weigh the good against the bad. And I start to say, is this still worth it for me? Because for me to have this relationship, it needs to be worth it for me. And the moment I think that the bad outweighs the good, I'm done. And I'm not going to stick around for whatever may be on the other side of that conflict in a better, uh, more, more lasting joy that might come on the other side. But in the gospel, God works resilience into our relationships by making us one part of a bigger whole. It means that you're part of something. If you're in Christ, you're part of something that's bigger than yourself. You, have, you still have your individual identity, but you also have a greater identity that comes first as a member of the body of Christ. When you look at your life, what you do and what you think of, do you think of it as mine? Or do you think of it as ours? 
because in Christ it's ours. I'm not saying it's, I'm not saying you need to think of it as yours, you, you, you know, but it's ours, right? So you can think of yourself as a steward of, of what belongs to the body of Christ and a steward of, of the resources that you can use and give to benefit the body, right? But as part of the body of Christ, we don't just look out for ourselves. We use what we have to look out for the whole because we're part of the whole, right? Can you imagine taking a shower and your hand like picks up the soap and like you only wash, it only washes itself. It's like, no, I'm not going to, I'm not going to wash anybody else. I just look out for myself. That's not how bodies work. Right. Or imagine brushing your teeth and being like, oh, well the teeth have to brush themselves because the hands don't need to be brushed. Like they are, they're already washed. Or can you imagine going to the, well, you guys get the picture, right? Like you don't have to, we don't have to go. You're with me. Okay. So, so because we're part of a bigger whole conflict with another <laughs> member of the body, it's like conflict against ourselves. It's like, it's like our body fighting against itself. And that's what puts you in the hospital. This doesn't mean that conflict doesn't happen. But when it does, rather than giving up and moving on, we deal with it because we want the body to, to continue to survive and even thrive throughout it. Rather than giving up and moving on, we deal with it. And we're always pulling for that joyful unity whenever and wherever it's possible. But relationships can be messy and dysfunctional, amen? Like that's not, it's not just, it's simply cut and dry like that. They're a case by case basis. Conflict can be extraordinarily painful. Amen. Like can, has anyone ever really felt that conflict can be really, really painful? And that brings us then to the third way that God works resilience into our relationships, which is by mobilizing us to work together for joy and unity. So look at verse 23. He says, but I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, for you stand firm in your faith. So the reason Paul didn't come back was because he wanted to give the Corinthians more time to repent, more time to, to, to see his letter and to turn away from their sin and to just come to their senses and come to follow the, the God who is, not the God who they wanted him to be, and to repent from their sin and to come together in unity. Otherwise, he would have had to use his authority as an apostle in the church to exercise church discipline. As a, as a leader in the church, he could have exercised church discipline, and, and he would have had to do that for the, the betterment of the body if they stuck with their sin and their sin continued to pull them away from Christ and to pull them away from each other. And so Paul didn't want to do that. He does, he, what he's saying is he's saying, I don't use that lightly. I don't, I don't view that lightly. I don't want to just throw, throw that authority around. Uh, but instead, he's saying he doesn't, in fact, he'd prefer not to use it at all. But it's exactly for situations like this that that authority exists. When we in our sin are wandering away from God, when we're dragging other people away from God, that, that, that other godly people in our life can call us out and, and bring us back to the gospel. Amen? Because sin steals joy. It steals it from us. It steals it from the people around us. So whether by church discipline or not, in everything he does, Paul is working with the Corinthians for their joy, specifically the joy that comes from knowing Jesus and sharing in his love uh, for, the, for others. And that joy will come as long as our faith is real and the Holy Spirit is in us. And Paul's, in, in the case of the Corinthians, Paul's sure of that. He says, uh, for you stand firm in your faith. So he continues in chapter two. He says, for I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? And I wrote as I did, so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you, that my joy would be the joy of you all. 
For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. So what Paul is doing is he's opening up his heart in this letter to the Corinthians to show them just how deeply he cares about them. And and that the reason that he didn't come back as planned was because he wanted to see them not in conflict and not in the context of hard conversations and, and church authority. He wanted to see them in the context of joy through unity. He wanted to celebrate them. Look at what he says. He says, for if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? In other words, because we're made to take joy in others, and, and because God made us each one part of a bigger whole, our joy comes through unity. And so as a church, God is mobilizing us to work together for joy and unity, to work together to put sin to death, and to deal with and resolve conflict to the end of having the joyful unity that comes on the other side. Joy and unity doesn't just mean the absence of conflict. Right? We're not just talking about like if we don't have conflict, then that means we're, we're united and that's great. Because sometimes you can avoid conflict just by avoiding people. right? And I might even be so bold as to say a church without conflict might not be a healthy sign. That You, you almost want to see conflict in your church. I'm not saying instigate, but I'm saying that you know, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a sign that we're doing life on life together and we're dealing with the sin in our lives. Right? That's why we, the, whole, uh, the whole last uh, series in 1 Corinthians, we called it Messy Church because, because church is messy and relationships are messy and dysfunctional. And so a church without conflict is a church without real community, a church that hides its sin from each other. And so if you, I'm going to be bold again. If you don't have conflict with anyone in the church, if you don't see that in your life, I'm not saying go out and instigate it, but I'm saying maybe there's an opportunity for you to become even more involved. And I'm not saying conflict should be there or always has to be there um, because when the Holy Spirit's working in us, we're filled with love for each other and we, we end up not really having conflict in our lives. But if, if you're seeing that you might not have a lot of conflict in your life, it may be that there's an opportunity for you to be even more involved in the lives of the people around you, right? Because we don't wanna, all I'm saying is we don't wanna be one of those churches that just avoids conflict by avoiding people. We wanna be a, a, a church that's in deep spiritual godly community in vulnerability, confessing our sins, bringing our, our hearts to the light, and walking and helping each other to, to work together for joy and holiness and sanctification. It starts, with, uh, it starts with this supernatural joy that we have with each other. And so in reading this passage, what I want for us, for, for, for me and for each of you, is, is for us to take responsibility, to take ownership of the joy of this church. Take ownership for the joy of, of the brothers and sisters in Christ around you. Know what's going on in their lives and work together for joy. Identify the sin that they're struggling with that they might be blind to. And in, in a gentle, gracious, godly way, work together with them for joy. Live for the body of Christ around you. And as, as we do that, as we live together for the body of Christ, as the body of Christ, we can take ownership for the joy of our community. And we can be the hands and feet of Christ going out into the, the, the area of Washtenaw County, the people living in and around it, around us, bringing the love of Christ. But it starts with that supernatural joy in each other as God mobilizes us to work together for joy and unity. Okay. So we've talked a lot about the theology and the vision of how in the midst of our conflict, God is working this supernatural resilience into our relationships. He's doing it by moving us to celebrate others. 
He's doing it by making us one part of a bigger whole. And he's doing it by mobilizing us to work together for joy and unity. But until you've actually suffered serious pain in the midst of a relationship, these are just ideas. They can and they will help prepare you for what's to come. But they're not going to be very useful to you outside of real conflict, real painful conflict. And so if you're not experiencing any of that right now, this might seem like well and fine. But if you are, this is hard. And this is a, it's a hard road to take. Amen. It's hard to, it's, that's why people tend to just have disposable relationships. That's always the easy road out. It's to say, you know what? I just don't want to deal with this. I just don't want to deal with this brokenness that I see in myself and this brokenness that I see in you. And it, it just hurts. I don't want to deal with it. But it's, it's when you live through that conflict and come out on the other side that you have friends and family for eternity you have brothers and sisters in Christ that you can boast in and that you can celebrate more than you ever would have before. And again, Paul's saying that's going to happen. On the day of Christ, we'll be celebrating and boasting in each other. But we can do that now. We can celebrate each other now. We can live for each other now. When you experience the joy of leading someone to Christ, it changes how you look at the things that you celebrate. And, and all of a sudden, you see that it's so much more worthwhile to live for and to celebrate people and to long to, to have people come into the body of Christ than it is to spend your time any other way. And I'm not saying you don't still get deceived and you still, you don't, your heart still doesn't still go after other things. But when you realize that there's going to be people in heaven alongside you worshiping God for eternity because of what God did through you, that's just this glorious thought. And when you get to come around and support a suffering member of the church, or maybe be a member of the church who, who's on the receiving end of that support, that changes the, how you see your own identity. And you say, man, I am glad that I'm not just an individual. I'm glad that I'm part of something that's bigger than just myself. I don't want to ever go back to being just an individual. Not just receiving that support, but being able to give it, being able to offer it. It's such a wonderful feeling to know that God can use you to actually help someone in the world and actually make a difference. And, and not just you, but people who have gifts that complement your own, that together you can be something so much greater than we are apart. And when you experience the camaraderie that comes on the other side of fighting sin side by side to put it to death and to know Jesus more, it changes how you see accountability in your life. And all of a sudden, you're a lot more willing to open your heart up to the brothers and sisters in Christ around you, to be vulnerable and to take all of the hidden sins that are in there and to bring them out to the light and to the surface and say, help me be, be accountable to me as I'm accountable to you. And let's partner together and work together to fight for joy because I don't want this sin to hide in my heart and fester. And I know how much more powerful it is when we're able to, to help each other and work together to fight for joy and use that, those complementing gifts that we have to be applied against the sin and the brokenness in our lives by the power of God. And so in all of this, God uses our conflict to showcase the power of his grace and to unite us with a supernatural joy that the worse the conflict, the greater the demonstration of God's grace in the midst of it. Amen? God is working in our, our most bitter conflict to, to bring about his grace to show restored relationships. So take, take Paul. Paul used to persecute the church. He used to be one of the, the public enemy number ones of the church, the, one of the biggest, most feared people by Christians. 
Now there's nothing on earth that he loves more than the church. How's that for a story of conflict being turned into unity? And now he's the one going out and, and enduring the conflict with churches like the Corinthians because of how much he loves them, because of how confident he is of the unity that's coming on the other side. Pray that God would work out a supernatural resilience in our relationships, that we would be people who endure and embrace the conflict that comes our way because we love the people on the other side of it and we long to celebrate and have joyful unity with them in the future on the other side of that conflict. Let's pray. God, I thank you for this passage. I thank you for just the love and grace that we see you have for us in it. God, we're weak, and in our weakness, we tend to run from hard things. And I just know that the easy, the easy road, the tendency for all of us is going to be to run from the pain of conflict. It's going to be to run from, from the hard relationships, from the hard conversations, to put a smile on, to not talk about it, and to just, if necessary, distance ourselves from the people that we have a hard time getting along with. Lord, I pray that we would not be that kind of church because that separates the body of Christ and that must not happen. Lord, help us to be a people who come together in close-knit, tight community and work together for joy, for the joy of our body and for the joy of the community around us. Only you can do this through us, God. I pray that you would move in our hearts and help us to be a people who, through your power, face the conflict as it comes. Amen.